What would you do if you were wronged? I mean really wronged. Wronged to the extent that your life would be taken away from you as a result of the actions you never took. What if it was the path your life was on that led you to this point? Would you accept that this was just another turn your life was always destined to take? Or would you fight it? Would you fight until there was no more fight left in you? Or would you continue past that point? It's the life of an Irishman from Chicago which answers these questions for us. This is his story. In December 1882, a child was born. His name was Thomas Mooney. Thomas's father, Bernard, was a coal miner by day and a militant organiser of the Knights of Labour, an American Labour Federation. Bernard fought hard for the rights of the oppressed in America, constantly looking for better working conditions and for the better lives of others. On one occasion, whilst involved in a civil rights protest which had gotten out of hand, Bernard was beaten by police so badly that he was left for dead on the Chicago streets. This is where he was destined to pass through the pearly gates. That was the plan. That was the plan at least, until a woman found him lying in the streets and carried this large labour man on her small frame across the city to her home and took care of the stranger until he was well enough to leave. Her name was Mary. Mary was born in Belmullet, County Mayo, in 1849. A child of famine survivors in one of the worst hit parts of the island, Mary's life began quite bleak. At the time of her birth, Mary's parents had the grim occupation of having to deal with the bodies sprayed across the Connacht landscape. With so many having starved to death in the fields and ditches as they travelled in the hope of some sort of a meal, their bodies couldn't be left on the roads. Mary's parents would set out every morning and drag the bodies to the mass pit graves and watch as they were dumped into the ground on top of the bodies of their friends, family and neighbours. Some of those they brought to the pits were no longer identifiable. Some of their faces so gaunt from the hunger, their closest friends could no longer identify them. Some, being assumed dead by the creatures of Connacht, had had their flesh and limbs taken from them. The role was designed by the British establishment in Ireland, who only provided social welfare for the starving if they worked for it. Those too weak to work were left for dead. Those too old to work were left to starve by their fireplaces, should they be lucky enough to have them. Mary's family, heartbroken by the daily horrors they were living through, managed to save enough money to place their teenage daughter on a boat in Galway and sent her to the New World in America. She was destined to never return home again. Her parents kissed her goodbye at the port and never again would they meet. Daily prayers were said for her and the others who had been sent in the hope of survival on the Mayo coastline facing America. 
some would never discover what happened to their young after they left the Celtic Isle. They would never know if life improved. They would never know if their children found joy. They would never know if their children survived the journey, as many, many weren't. Mary, one of the lucky few, did survive the journey. She married the man she saved in the Chicago streets, soon after his recovery, and together they brought three Irish Americans into the world. Three great children, they, and all those who'd hoped for a better life for her for Mayo, could be immensely proud of. The eldest was Thomas. Whilst Thomas loved his mother dearly, it was his father who he idolised. He would joyfully listen to all his father's stories about the struggles of the working man and the fights he would have in the street on their behalf. Thomas would watch with glee as his father would leap from his armchair and start shadowboxing around the room, exclaiming things like, and then I caught him like this, Tom, and I hit him a punch like this. Bernard taught young Thomas how to make a fist and how to defend himself. They would dance around the kitchen table, throwing jabs at each other and reliving his father's battles. Mary would watch her boys with great delight. She would always encourage her son, hit him Tom, give him a good hard smack, show him what you Irish boys are made of. Bernard's fighting days came to an end when Tom turned just 10 years old. As a result of his work in the mines, he picked up a disease known as miner's lung. This is where the dust built up within the miner's lungs and it was so bad that it effectively choked them from the inside out. It was a result of his death that Mary sat with her son and explained to him now his childhood would have to end and he would need to take his father's role in the mines so the family could eat. Tom found the work incredibly tough. He was after all just 10 years old and doing the physical work of a hardened grown man. After witnessing the work of Cork woman, Mary Harris, better known as Mother Jones, Thomas's mother took him out of the mines. She couldn't bear to see him maimed like the other children of the mines. She then took a job in a paper factory to support her young family and worked every day until she could work no more, go to bed and do it all over again the following morning. Thomas, as a result of his father's memory and viewing what Mary Harris was doing, began to become more and more interested in the civil rights movements across America as he got older. He held many jobs as a labourer in his young adulthood before developing a career as a labour leader and socialist activist. He saved as much as he could and as a young man he went to tour Europe where he learned about socialism and equal rights for all. When he returned, Mary suggested he go to spend some time in California. She had heard things were slightly less rough for the Irish there as the prejudice they lived through had not quite spread as far as there. When he arrived, 
he met a woman called Renée, and they soon married. The two lived very happily together, and Tom found himself a role in the Socialist Party of America. He became a very prominent figure in the movement, and in 1910, Thomas won a trip to the Second International Conference in Copenhagen by selling a huge number of subscriptions to the socialist Wilshire magazine. On his way home, he visited the British Trade Union Congress in Sheffield, England. Whilst there, he learned of the civil rights movements in Ireland and met some of those who would go on to be heavily involved in the 1913 lockout. He made connections with the leaders of the Irish movement and they shared their ideas on how workers could begin living soon rather than continue to be serfs for the rich. Thomas returned to California with a renewed surge for justice for all. He became a very recognisable figure by all as a result of his speeches and actions around the movement. Over the next few years, he became very friendly with the other leaders of the civil rights movement. Amongst them, Dublin man Bill Haywood, Cork woman Mary Mother Jones, and Galway woman Elizabeth Gurley Flynn. As his fame grew, Thomas and Rene launched The Revolut, a socialist newspaper in San Francisco. The paper was a modest success, with a circulation of 1,500 readers. Thomas also later ran for sheriff as the Socialist Party of America candidate. The more famous he became, the more hassle was introduced to his life. With America being totally anti-socialism, or civil rights for that matter at the time, Thomas and the others were seen as a massive hindrance to the wealthy at the top of America. In 1913, he was arrested on three separate occasions. He was arrested, but never convicted of a charge of transporting explosives for the purpose of blowing up power transmission lines during a Pacific Gas and Electric Strike in 1913. On July 22nd, 1916, Thomas's life would change forever. He was tried and convicted for the preparedness day bombing. The Preparedness Day bombing was a bombing in San Francisco on July 22, 1916, of a parade organised by local supporters of the Preparedness Movement, which advocated America's entry into World War I. During the parade, a suitcase bomb was detonated, killing 10 and wounding 40 in the worst attack in San Francisco's history. The bombing took place at the height of the anarchist violence in the United States. Thomas, his wife Renee, and his socialist colleague Warren K. Billings and taxi driver and friend of Thomas, Israel Weinberg, were all immediately arrested for the bombing. The trial was a farce. Thomas and the others appeared on the stands having clearly been beaten. In the early days of the trial, Thomas could not see how both his eyes had swollen 
due to the point of blindness after the BTNC is received. When he regained his sight, Thomas spent the trial with his hands gripped to those in his wife and never broke eye contact with his mother in the stands who cried through every moment of the ordeal. The show trial that followed was conducted in a lynch mob atmosphere and featured several witnesses whose testimony was allegedly coached by the prosecutors. The trial was such a farce that one of the key witnesses was a woman who claimed, although she was not there herself, she had an out-of-body experience and her soul saw them do it. Rene Mooney and Weinberg were acquitted. Billings was sentenced to life in prison. Thomas was sentenced to be hung. Awaiting his untimely death, Thomas was visited by a number of people. His wife and mother would often visit. But he was also visited a number of times by James Larkin and Hannah Sheehy Skeffington. Both had fled Ireland due to their involvement in the Easter Rising and the threats to their lives and freedoms. Larkin, becoming a key figure in the civil rights movement and with his connections in Irish America as a result of his role in Ireland, managed to get in contact with then President Woodrow Wilson and explained how he felt Thomas was an innocent man and he should not have to be killed for something he did not do. Without informing Mooney's defence committee, Wilson telegraphed California Governor William Stevens, asking him to commute Thomas's sentence to life imprisonment. He succeeded, and Thomas was informed he would not be hung for his crime. As Irish America rose, their voices in defence for one of their own, Prisoner 31921 quickly became one of the most famous political prisoners in America. As the Irish community across the world began to hear of Thomas's story, a world campaign to free Tom Mooney followed. The campaign had a face, but it wasn't a face of politics and it wasn't a face of power. It was a face of a fading old woman. A woman whose lifeblood had been drained from her as a result of what was happening to her son. The face and voice which led Thomas's campaign was that of his mother, Mary. Mary went across the world telling her son's story and gained support from world leaders, celebrities and more importantly, the ordinary people. Mary Mooney was in her late 60s. She dedicated the rest of her life to securing her son's release. As Mother Mooney, she was portrayed as the militant mother of an unjustly convicted son. She became a symbol of a broad campaign for political prisoners. She did not just fight for her son's life. She fought so all the mothers who had lost their sons in a similar fashion could get them back again. 
She also campaigned for a series of African Americans who were wrongly imprisoned as a result of being different. Mary became the voice for all wronged. Sixteen years after Thomas's arrest, Mary was still fighting. And in late February 1932, Mary, now 84 years old, stood on a stage before thousands in New York's Coliseum Theatre. Weary from travel and suffering from illness, she was unable to speak clearly as she stood before the microphone. She did not need to speak at length. Her message was a simple one. In meeting halls across the United States and in European capitals such as London, Berlin and Moscow, her demand was repeated. The immediate release of her son from a California prison and justice for a group of African-American teenagers facing execution on Alabama's death row. She introduced the other mothers of the other wronged boys to the crowd and encouraged them all to call out their sons' names. She told them to hold up pictures of their boys and show them to the world. Later that year, in 1932, the Olympics was being held in Los Angeles. Mary and Thomas's fight found a new world audience. As athletes rounded the track in the final lap of the race, camera footage was interrupted. As the world watched, they witnessed a young Irish man and a young African-American man leap over the hoarding around the stadium and hand in hand they charged the finish line. Here they took from a bag a green flag and on the flag in golden writing were the words Free Tom Mooney. The two young men held the sign high in one hand side by side and with their other hand they held a clenched fist to the sky. As they did this others exploded from the stands and ran onto the track doing the same. Two years later, Mary's fight for Tom's cause came to an end as she went above the clouds to join her dear husband. Thomas applied for day release to go to his mother's funeral but was denied access as he may spread the ideas of socialism whilst at the funeral. At her funeral, above her coffin, the other mothers of the struggle hung a banner which said, Mother Mooney, we will finish your fight. Twelve months after his mother's death, Thomas wrote a letter of appeal to the state. In it, he pleaded his case and provided evidence that his conviction was unlawful. This was thrown out before being read by anyone as he sent it to the wrong court and thus his appeal would not be granted and he would need to provide further new evidence which was a ridiculous nature of the legal system at the time. He appealed again on a number of other occasions on different grounds and in 1939 
after pressure by Irish America and Liberal Democratic Governor Culbert Olson, Thomas's case was heard. He won. His case formed the basis for evidence used in American courts today are required to follow due process. After his release, he showered, had something to eat and went straight to his mother's grave. He broke down in tears at the thought of what had happened over the 23 years and what it had done to her. He then marched with the other trade union members through the streets of San Francisco. The march was to show their solidarity with Thomas and his mother. Thomas found life after prison very difficult. During his prison years, he had lost contact with his wife. He had lost contact with his friends from before his prison days. And whilst in prison, he had become sick with ulcers and developed jaundice. He did, however, campaign for his old friend, Billings, and his release on the same grounds of his own, and was successful. But the two did not stay in touch. Three years after his release, Thomas was admitted to the St. Luke's Hospital in San Francisco due to medical complications. He had very few visitors and only a handful of letters. He died a few days later. Today's music was written, performed and produced by Rhino Halloran. The story was researched and scripted by myself, Oren. If you enjoyed learning about Tom Mooney and want to help us share more stories, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash We The Irish. We The Irish is an Ireland Loves production. Orna Sanam Dum. Gerb Magut. You can't plan your day around accidents. That's why at your local Leia Health and Wellbeing Clinic in Cherrywood, we're open 10am to 10pm, 365 days a year. So anyone can get consultant-led care within an hour of arrival. For breaks, burns and sprains. It's the expert care you'd expect from Leia Healthcare for the minor injuries and illnesses you never expected. Leia Healthcare, looking after you always. Urgent care available to all aged 12 months and up. Wellbeing benefits available to Leia Healthcare members.